This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, and with me, Cam Rasland, today we have uh, two of BFM's finest. You know him from the evening edition. He is Hezreel Ashraf. Hi, everyone. Hi. And also, we have uh, on our mantel, it's called uh, All Male Panel, uh, we have uh, the guy who knows more about technology than anyone else I know. He is Matt Armitage. Hey, Cam. Uh, on that note, actually, I've stopped calling things uh, like manned space stations and started calling them human. Okay. All right. Well, it's a humor panel. Um, anyway, our three topics today will be, uh, topic number one is, is there ever the right time? Topic number two is Encyclopedia Britannica. And finally, uh, topic number three is, uh, well, I don't know, it takes a part. Would that, be, would that be the correct uh, description, Matt? It's one description. You could also say you've got to break the internet to make it better. That, that, that's a better one. That's a better one. Okay, so uh, Hezreel, I hope this is the right time for your topic. Uh, when is the right time? Yeah, so that's a good question, uh, Cam. So I'm, I'm a big fan of the New York Times. So both, uh, I thought about the topic after uh, reading two articles there. So the first one um, is in the vows section. Uh, it's headlined, The Right Time Came a Decade Later. Uh, so, so these two friends who met in, uh, in, in, uh, before their college years, I guess, uh, it took them 10 years for them to, I guess, get it right and fall in love with each other. The first time didn't work out. Um, and, and the article sort of says that it, it's an accumulation of their experiences. And, and speaking of experiences, um, that's the conclusion of the second headline, which is Joe Biden finally got the timing right. Um, and the conclusion here is basically it took the vice president, right, the Democrat nominee, uh, nearly half a decade of public service and the loss of his son. To, to get a real shot at the presidency. So, so his quote unquote sustained faith in himself and in God and a life, um, I guess, shaped by sorrow. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, so I, I think for me, it's, it's one of two things, you know, does it, do we have to wait for the right conditions to get something right for, you know, to, to, to succeed at something we're trying to do or, or do we need to make those conditions to, to succeed and and i'm a bit i guess i'm a bit lost oh yeah i don't know either matt uh you tell us yeah I, I i see his face and he's <laughs> grinning he's just waiting to say something so no not really uh, but the i tend to think with uh, things like this i don't i don't tend to think there's a right time for things uh i think there are a lot of coincidences that come into play i mean one of the obviously i'm always interested in uh, the kind of first mover positions and first mover positions are usually doing things when the time isn't right because you're doing it for the sake of pushing boundaries you're doing it for the sake of introducing new ideas or or new technology so I'm kind of in a reverse position where often I go into meetings and people are talking about things that I was working on sort of three years ago so obviously a lot of the things that I do I'm not doing it the right time because I'm not doing it at the, the right time for the mainstream. But then at the same time, you still need those people who are doing the things first in order for those ideas to, to cement, to be discussed, and for them to, to filter down into the mainstream. Because when we talk about someone like Joe Biden, 
a lot of the comments that you hear from American voters that he is a hold the nose candidate. He's just less of a hold the nose candidate than Donald Trump is. So I think one of the um, interviews I saw a snippet from uh, Fox News a couple of uh, days ago, Chris Wallace uh, was talking to another of Fox's correspondents about the lack of enthusiasm for Joe Biden's campaign compared to the Trump supporters. But Wallace made the point that it's not necessarily about enthusiasm for Biden. There's enthusiasm to vote against Trump. So what you're not necessarily seeing is all of the people who are motivated to vote, but they're not necessarily motivated to go out and support Joe Biden. Mm. So that's, Mm -hmm. that's why for me, time is, you know, obviously it's a relative concept because it, it is time, but I don't necessarily think there is always a right time for things. You just have different situations where coincidences Uh. intersect. I, I don't know, Matt, I think, has uh, persuaded me that there is a right time for things. <laughs> because you, you perfectly described the, a, a set of situa- a circumstances where it is the right time. And I would say on a really small scale, if we start with a really small scale, sometimes today is not the right time to send that email. Mm. Uh, to, tomorrow is definitely the right time to think about, uh, be very glad that you didn't send that email. Yes, I agree, but the, but I think you're looking at it from a micro perspective when I'm yeah, looking yeah, at it more from, build, a, yeah, from a macro. So, so, for example, now is not the best time to have Joe Biden as president, but it's the best time for Joe Biden to become president. So from a personal perspective, it's the right time for him, whereas for everybody else, it's just the candidate that you're stuck with. All right, well, Hezreel, uh, I, mean, I mean, what do you think? So... Okay, my, I'm just going to toss it back to you and say, sure. but what if, what about um, those personal moments in our lives, right? Those milestones when we meet someone we love or uh, when we uh, hit jackpot with uh, a job we really like and we're, that we're going to stick around with for a long time. Um, for, in my experience, it's been a combination of... Um, you know, my, my willingness to, to step in and make a decision and a, com- you know, a combination of factors that, that are sort of beyond my control, right? Um, whether that's, uh, I guess, the, the job market, the condition of the job market at the time, um, whether there's a vacancy in a company like BFM, right? I only joined a few months ago. So, yeah, well, what about those personal things? Um, did you find that there's a combination? Yeah, but you well, just described a lot of happenstance there. Exactly. Uh, I mean, I'd, I'd make the same point that what we're looking at there is luck. Um, you're, you're looking at things either in terms of fate or luck. I would look at that as being, as Cam said, happenstance and luck, whereas your position might be more that it was fated to occur. Mm. And, and because I, I, I instinctively always want to disagree with Matt, <laughs> um, <laughs> I would say, yes, you've described happenstance, but you make your own luck. I guess uh, you you put yourself you can put yourself into position, hmm. but I mean we don't know what your your darkest timeline is was you know we don't know what you know you could be working now in a much better place than BFM <laughs> yeah, assuming there such a thing oh. as possible or, or or a much worse place and you would not know you'd never know hmm. so that's, that's a good point. But I would just say on a personal note that uh, I um, got married relatively late. 
and the timing was absolutely right for myself and my wife. And if we'd met, I know for a fact, if we'd met two years earlier, it wouldn't, it just wouldn't have made sense for either of us. Um, and it just sort of just happened. So I, I, I do think that I didn't make that luck. I didn't make that timing. Right. It just happened. Mm. Oh, oh, okay. Well, Hezra, I hope that um, we've been of some help as, as the village elders. <laughs> I'm going to, yeah. So I'm, I'm just going to conclude that it's a combination of both that, that, that um, yes, there's, there's some luck to it, but maybe we have to look out for that luck, right? Yeah. And also make sure you're never running against Barack Obama for anything, Hezreel. Just, just, Absolutely. Just, and, and I'm going to throw a spanner into the works for today's show by agreeing with everything that Cam says to force him into an immediate contrary position. No, no, you're absolutely, uh, no, I'm, yeah, I think uh, that's brilliantly put, Matt. And uh, I'll go with that. So we move on though. Topic number two, uh, which is the Encyclopedia Britannica. My computer right now is resting on two copies of two um, uh, uh, volumes of the Encyclopedia Britannica from 1968 and uh, of I think about 27 volumes. That's uh, not surprising. Yeah. Number five, for instance, goes from Carthusians to Cockcroft. I do not know what a Cockcroft is or was and uh, sounds a bit rude to me, but if I looked at the back of this one, I'd find out that it's probably something quite, quite nice. And I grew up with this um, particular uh, set of uh, Encyclopedia Britannica, and I did look in once in a while. But of course, whoever looks now, whoever, we have Google, you would never go to an encyclopedia. But I'm just thinking that uh, once upon a time, there were oracles of truth that if they didn't necessarily describe the, the definitive um, truth, they certainly portrayed a consensus of opinion of what the truth would be about either Carthusians or indeed a Cockcroft. But now with uh, the internet, which I earlier, uh, before we started recording, called it Matt's, Matt Armitage's internet, and I hold it against you, Matt. Um, with, with the internet, we have, uh, the, 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 the landscape is open for not definitive arguments about it, but just opinions. There's someone out there who's probably got a, a whole uh, blog spot about cockcrofts and how we've always got it wrong and you should never go near a cockcroft because they're really dangerous. So uh, I'm just wondering, uh, did, did I come from an age where we were just being naive and sheeple or are we now in a zone where it's just a crazy free-for-all? Matt. <laughs> well, I mean, just on, again, just on that, that, that word sheeple, which is uh, a word that I absolutely abhor, um, because it, it seems to be used for any kind of um, community or, or, or unity of thought and vision, which is absurd, because we're all sheeple when it comes to one plus one is two, two plus two is, is four. So we've put into place this idea that if there is a, a mass of opinion and that, that opinion is uh, all very similar or it overlaps or it coincides, then there must be something wrong with that. And we have seen this era described as uh, being a post-truth age, and I, I think there's definitely something to that. But we do need to get back to some form of return of trust in information, trust in facts, 
And I think the, the internet will have to change in shape to a certain degree because we, we, as you rightly said, we do have this situation now where opinions are worth as much as facts. And it's very hard to distinguish one from the other. I, I, that's the thing. I, so I, I think as, um, as a person who's, who's, I guess, uh, the youngest, hey, yeah, okay. say it. Go okay. on. as a young person <laughs> who's, who's, who's going through the changes, um, there's something to be said about people looking uh, for opinions and facts that validate their own opinions. A good example is Twitter. All right. I, I feel like certain places on Twitter are becoming more polarized in the sense that the, 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 the discussions aren't very constructive. It gets to a point where, you know, even for me, I'm guilty of this, where I'm just, I'm just looking for people that are just echoing my sentiments. And, and I think that is, that is a dangerous uh, direction to head in. Right. And, and, and I'm, I'm noticing it's, it's weird. I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but on Twitter, when uh, they retweet, quote unquote, news sources. So this is a, a new function now. Um, it's a bit weird because um, some of them look like opinions. <laughs> uh, you know, it's not, you know, it's not like CNN figures or uh, facts by the New, Eng new England um, Journal of Medicine. It's sort of like these sort of obscure um, news slash opinion sources that they're, they're, wow. they're retweeting. So I'm like, whoa, this is, this is a bit funky. Yeah, yeah. Uh, things you've never heard yeah. of. Yeah. The, and it's something, it's some sort of oracle of truth. Exactly. I, think, I think, though, that um, a big difference in the way of absorbing so-called information is that on Twitter, you and I, Hezreel, could be seemingly having a conversation on Twitter. But there's very much a performative quality to our, our conversation because it's very public. And, and we, we are perhaps striving to get uh, likes and retweets. Yeah. So we're not really just talking to each other. We're just, we're just uh, declaiming our thoughts and ideas, shouting each That's other true. down. Whereas if you are looking at a book, an encyclopedia, say, well, I mean, I guess the same could be true for reading, um, uh, uh, picking something from Google. But, it, but there's, there is no performative quality to reading the book. You're absolutely on your own. And just to, to add to that as well, there's also uh, an element of monetization that's involved in those conversations as well when you're having them on social media, because you're having those conversations on a platform from a for-profit company. And that uh, company's algorithms are promoting certain conversations in your direction. So one of the differences about conversation now or digital conversation with um, you know analog conversation if you like face-to-face -face conversation is that you now have this third party this third party company that's inserting itself in every part of that conversation and deciding which parts of it either get promoted to you or get promoted to to other people so that there, there's also this cost element uh, or or, or profit element to your conversations with with people which is very very different but just picking up on something you said Hezreel earlier which was uh, about sources of opinion and I think one of the, the key things to this behavior online is understanding what is fact and what is opinion and that's one of the uh, that's one of the things that I think is being degraded 
at the moment, we're losing that sense of where that line is between what is real and what we believe. So I, I notice, um, to, to, I think to, to two of your points, Matt, um, and they have to do with each other. It's uh, the first one is monetization, right? Because I'm thinking, what about writers that submit an op-ed uh, in Malaysia, for instance, right? On Malaysia Kini or, or some other platform, Once in a Blue Moon. Even though they don't get compensated, there is a certain um, glamour, you know, about trying to assert yourself as a as, as a subject matter expert on something in politics, for instance, right? That, I think that's the lowest hanging fruit. Um, and then on the other hand, you know, so so I think one of the the things that makes um, you know a good journalist is that they they dig into the facts and and uh, deal with unpleasant things that that may go against their own views. But I'm, I'm noticing more and more in in um, in local platforms here that half the things half the op-eds i read are are unsubstantiated by actual figures or sources right there, there's a lot of speculation there's a lot of feelings thrown and involved and um they seem to be asserted uh, i guess in some ways they're asserted as as truths right like personal truths and uh, so so it's a weird sort of phenomena that i'm seeing online and not not everyone uh, you know, not everyone writing those op-eds in the first place are are actually subject experts. They're they're ordinary citizens at home. They're engineers or a financial accountants writing about politics or writing about uh, you know economic policies. And and so it's there's an interesting sort of phenomenon. Well, I, it, that reminds me of the Stephen Colbert uh, in his uh, former uh, character called Stephen Colbert. Uh, promoting, he promoted the the concept of truthiness, yeah. where it 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 doesn't have to be true; it just has to feel like it is. <laughs> and and you know you and you 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 agree with the feeling mm. uh, and the emotion that's being thrown at you, as opposed to any particular truth that's yeah. inside it. Um, but uh, we're going to move on though, because uh, I think maybe I've described some some broken aspect of uh, internet life but matt armitage in a moment is going to tell us how we can fix it or break it more and then fix it uh here on a bit of culture bfm 89.9 and we're back with myself cam raslan uh Hezreel ashraf and now matt armitage who is going to tell us that in order to fix the internet we may need to break it first yeah, well, I read this really interesting essay on Wired.com. It's uh, by Eli Pariza, who is, um, uh, he's the board president of moveon.org. He was a co-creator of Upworthy, uh, which is the positive social sharing site. And he's also a, a, a co-founder of Avaz, the online activist network. So his essay was titled, uh, To Mend a Broken Internet, create online parks. And he looks at uh, some of the problems that we face with social spaces online, which are the, the problems that we just discussed in that, that last segment, and suggests some of the steps that we could take to, to fix them. Now, obviously, this year, the internet has been incredibly important to us. Uh, you know, the, the digital threads have enabled us to, to work from home. They've enabled us to be in contact with our friends and family. They've let us order food, uh, a lot of uh, essentially 
uh, a lot of essential supplies. And increasingly, you know, the digital world is making its way into our real life spaces. We're having a lot more augmented reality technology, virtual reality technology. I think Google is about to uh, launch something called Live View, which will add a lot of uh, different augmented reality layers to the, the world that you see through a screen. So the idea is that somehow viewing the real world through the screen of your phone is somehow going to enhance it and make it better. But Parisa's kind of essential point to all of this is that online, we go for these seamless, frictionless experiences. But offline, we have all this kind of friction. So the example he gives is of the public park. You go to the public park, there are kids playing, there are people playing sports, there are people just sitting quietly and reading, there are people working out, there are people running. But there's space in this park for all of these different kinds of behavior to coexist. But when we go online, we do, as you were saying, Hezra, we look for validation of our own opinion. We look for people who reflect our own viewpoints. We are making a conscious decision to opt out of that friction that we see uh, in the, the real world. And that's... I think, if anything, more important now because a lot of us, you know, we're under these uh, restrictive movement orders. We're not interacting with colleagues at work so much and we're doing it in digital spaces like the, the one that we're using now to record this show. So our entire lives are becoming a lot more friction-free. But as a result of that, we forget how to actually engage with people and how to engage with people who don't necessarily support our view or our opinion in these kind of public spaces. So the idea is that we should essentially break the internet to make it better and actually introduce the kind of frictions that we see in the real world, the idea of the public park coming to all of these social and online and digital spaces. Well, okay, Boomer. But if I can, if I can just speak for the, for, the, for the young person generation for a moment, you said we, we forget how to uh, interact in an in analog style. Yeah, but for um, Hezrael, I mean, I'm speaking for you here. For the, for the young people, it's not a case of forgetting. They've never, well, not never, but this is how they interact with people. Uh, no, just to, to interject there, my point was that this year with the pandemic, we've been removed from those physical interactions with people. So even people who live their lives online, the younger generation, they still have physical interactions with people. So they still learn those, those elements. What we see is, uh, what we see now is this blossoming or this blooming of um, intolerance and impatience because a lot of us are removed from these public spaces. We're not jostling against each other. We're not... Uh, shouting to get our voices heard as we would do in normal public spaces. Hezra, what do you think? So I think the most, the most um, sort of debate I've gotten uh, in a while was actually in, in college, right, in New York City. And that seems lifetimes ago, uh, considering how I, I feel like time has been warped by this pandemic. And um, so for me, I'm, I'm trying to think, how that would apply for me as a professional, because I think 
for students, there's value in, you know, sitting in those Socratic seminars, attending, um, uh, you know, cultural and social clubs on campus to talk about Black Lives Matter and uh, dissect what's wrong, uh, you know, perhaps what are the shortcomings of the movement versus uh, the things that they're doing right. But as a professional, I'm just trying to think how, you know, me having less physical interaction with people is, is, um, is, is not enriching, not enriching my, my, my viewpoints in the sense that I could, I could have a debate because I don't, I don't really have um, as many debates with people in, in real life anyways. Right. I feel like as a young person, I've gotten to the point where I, even physically, even before this pandemic, I, I, I seek people who, who agree with my views and tend to just parrot my thoughts. Um, so I, I'm just trying to figure out how this friction can be caused in the first place. Oh, I mean, one of, one of the ways to, to create that friction is actually to change the way that uh, the funding models of the internet work. So one of the, uh, one of the examples that's given is that public parks were actually a reaction to the private pleasure gardens of the kind of uh, 18th and 19th century that were only open to people who could afford to go into them. So the idea of the public spot, uh, the public park was a, a public space. But when we talk about things like Facebook and Twitter, they have the appearance of public spaces, but they're not public spaces. As I, as I said before, you know, they're, they're private for-profit companies and they promote certain posts. So for example, if you're putting your outfit of the day post up on uh, Instagram, if Instagram's algorithm doesn't think it's interesting, it won't promote it to your friends. So that's what I mean by these private companies inserting themselves in your communications. So what I think Parisa is saying is that we need to have more kind of public funding of the online infrastructure. And we also need to have more debate around how it's structured, even if those debates slow the internet and its development down, because it's that process of discussion, whether it's in a, in a parliament, in a forum, in a residence committee, that's how we come to these communal agreements that this is the the shape that we want things to come whereas with the internet in its current form it's reliant on venture capitalists and very much around uh tech entrepreneurs who who blitz scale and as parisa points out most of them tend to be uh young white males and young white males don't tend to think about what kind of um hate speech or other kind of negative uh, interactions that, say, people of color, people who are older, and of course, women face when they go online. Well, I, I, I mean, I take your point, and I distrust, um, I distrust the man just as much as anyone else. But at the same time, I do get very frightened when you say uh, public funding, because public funding is, it's not pure. It comes from politicians, and politicians have their own particular agenda. And and something as powerful as the internet, they would leap on it in a moment and uh, say, "You can't say this, you can't do that, you must say this, and you must say that." And I think that perhaps one public um, park where this is happening is inside China, uh, behind the um, the what do they call it, the, the, the Great Digital Wall. Um, I mean, that's a public funded space, and uh, I, I don't really want to be in there. Or, or indeed inside Russia, it's the same, same concept there. 
So uh, I'm not sure. But also these public parks, I mean, I, I, it's a metaphor, but if we just push the analogy a little bit further, they also have muggers. They have people wanting to get some sleep on the park bench, and they've got people doing it in the bushes. So, <laughs> and, and that's the internet. Yeah, and, and absolutely. So there do still have to be checks and balances. Obviously, it's not a, a perfect solution because there isn't a, a perfect solution. But what we have found is that with the current private model uh, or privately funded model, that we have all of this, this level of partisanship and we also have this opaqueness. We don't know how any of these systems work. We don't know how the algorithms are structured. So there's no accountability back to the public. I agree with you as well. I, I'm, I'm not that comfortable with the idea of governments coming in and running these spaces. I mean, when we look at public parks, they're generally run by municipalities. Some of them are better run than other places, but that would also be the case with uh, these online spaces as well. Yeah. There will be some places you can go that are going to be safe and wholesome and family friendly, and there are still going to be some that are very dangerous and edgy and yes you could get digitally mugged so, so for, for for speaking of infrastructure for me personally i think what i'd like added to that is to uh, really take seriously like models of interaction right I, educating people how to interact with each other online like like perhaps they do um in real life and i think part of that comes down to emotional intelligence right we can have all the the funding and, and, and uh, support to, to, to make these public parks more accessible and um, I guess more constructive. But at the end of the day, if, if I'm talking to someone who doesn't know how to deal with um, dissent or criticism and, and like have a, have a civil conversation with me online, I think inevitably that, that those conversations are going to break down to an extent. Right. And, because um, I had an attraction a few a few weeks ago with someone I had I disagreed with I, I I sort of went a bit off tangent and then I checked myself and apologized and said you know at the end of the day you know um, we're both Malaysians and uh, you know I, I love you as much as the next person so so and, and I had I had to willingly check myself and consciously say okay stop stop let's let's be civil and I'm not sure that everyone does that. Or is it capable of doing that online? No, oh, but, but, uh, we, 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 we must wrap this one up. But Matt, maybe I just ask you one final question. Okay. You've uh, put for well, well through this this uh, piece in the wire in Wired. Sorry, um, a really interesting idea. Do you think that it's actually genuinely possible? I do think elements of it are possible. Um, one of the things that we need to uh, get back to is the idea of the importance of uh, public funding. If you look at most of the innovation that happened post-Second World War up until the turn of the millennium, it was largely publicly funded. But since the, uh, the, the kind of digital boom, we've assumed that all innovation comes from uh, Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, all of these tech titans whereas a lot of the patents that their, their companies own a lot of the um, the technologies they're basing on is from public research uh, over over those years and we're we're seeing i think a generation now who doesn't have any connection to that history where innovation was 
publicly funded. And when we look at um, gaps like the uh, the antibiotic crisis, this is something that the the private world is not going to solve for us because there's not enough money in providing antibiotics. So we have to get back to this idea of the importance and the role of publicly funded innovation. Whoa. Okay. Well, you heard it here on a bit of socialism on uh, <laughs> BFM. No, no I, I mean, I, I, I agree with you. And, and like the, the way the um, universities have been destroyed around the world is just shocking. Uh, but we must move on. And uh, we come to the final part of the show, recommendations, where we recommend something that we think might be of interest. And Hezreel goes first. Uh, so I've been, I think you were going, keeping up with the show on Netflix called Criminal. Uh, specifically, it's Criminal United Kingdom, which is uh, funny because they, ha they have different versions mm. of it. Uh, but it's essentially, um, each episode is an interrogation. Um, these detectives are interrogating su suspected criminals for 40 minutes. And I have to say, um, it's a sort of, it's a, it's a breath of fresh air for me because um, it takes my mind off the, the crazy pandemic and uh, the I think just the way that it's constructed I mean it's fascinating that they can make something uh, you know in, in an interrogation room so engaging and gripping for 40 minutes um, and just the way they they sort of uh, you know get get the, the suspects to spill the beans and uh, yeah, I, I think it's quite fascinating. It's a, it's a refreshing take on a crime show. Yeah, I don't know which one's the first one because there's Germany, Spain, France. Exactly. I, I don't know which one's the first. Yeah, you know, not, I, I'd like to believe the UK one is the first, but I don't know why. I don't know. <laughs> I think they were simultaneous. Uh, I think I'm, I'm not sure. But, no, no, <laughs> no. It's just, if you if you because uh, my wife watches all of them and it's actually the same set. Oh, um, yeah. The stories are, are different, but they use the same set and the, the same format. So I think it was actually planned as a, a, a multi uh, kind of sequence format because they also bring out each uh, different language thing at the same time. So you, you see the Spanish one and the German one, I think, at the same time as the English one. That makes mm -hmm. sense. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I... Um, I I was going to check out one of the one of the non English language ones, but they're dubbed. It's like what? So I hate that. Um, so I yeah, think you can switch that. All right, I, that's, that's kind of tech talk that you just went that went over my head. Because so. <laughs> we we watched it with subtitles, which I can't read. Of course, yeah, because Matt has uh, eyesight. bad eyes. Uh, eyesight issues. Okay, so that's uh, Criminal on Netflix. Um, my recommendation is also on Netflix, actually, um, which is, uh, well, I guess a sign of the times, what with the um, CMCO and all that kind of thing. Mine is, uh, it was a series, uh, a documentary series called Patria, but also one about Che Guevara. And it's introduced by a historian, a Mexican historian uh, called Paco Ignacio Tiaibo II. And it's really good. He's an old school leftist historian. He goes around with t-shirts with Che Guevara on them and he's smoking all the time. And he's, um, uh, it, 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 so the, the, the Patria one is just, uh, it's about a 15 year part of Mexican history around the 1860s. And uh, I, I, 
didn't, I don't know enough about Mexican history, but it's really fascinating. And then he does another one on uh, the journeys of Che Guevara uh, around South America and through Cuba. And of course, when he finally died in Bolivia. And it's just, it's really refreshing to have um, a, a non-Anglo-Saxon historian uh, telling a history in a really robust style. Very entertaining. It, it, it's obviously all in Spanish, but with subtitles. Sorry, Matt. Um, but it, I really enjoyed it. So that's Patria on Netflix. Um, so Matt, what's yours? Mine is a, a show as well. Um, <laughs> mine is mine should be on HBO, but uh, for some reason is a bit hard to locate. It's uh, Deadwood. It's an HBO oh. show that came out in the uh, in the the noughties, the early noughties. Uh, and for some reason. I never really got into it at the time. I watched a, a couple of episodes and my dad was a big fan um, and I never got into it. So I finally got around to watching it maybe about a month ago and it is absolutely phenomenal. It's, it's basically a bit like the Sopranos, but uh, set in the, the Wild West. Uh, it's uh, in the, the town of Deadwood, which was a real gold rush town in the uh, 1880s and it features a lot of uh, real life characters uh, like um, Wild Bill Hickok and uh, you know a, a lot of these these kind of characters but it's basically just your kind of good and evil it's a it's a bit of a forerunner of uh, another show I really like Justified which also uh, stars Timothy Oliphant and essentially he plays the same role in uh, in Deadwood. He's a, a sheriff, a no-nonsense sheriff who's as happy to shoot people as he is to uh, sit down and have a drink with them. But the, the writing is just absolutely phenomenal. Uh, Ian McShane is fantastic as the uh, corrupt uh, bar and brothel keeper, uh, a very kind of complicated character who uh, one second is uh, murdering people and the next second is just sitting down and having a drink with them and they're, they're, they're the best of friends. So it's it's very interesting. It's very complex. And they cancelled it after only three seasons. I think it's uh, in a lot of the top 20 list of shows that were cancelled too soon. And Ian McShane has been vocal for sort of 10 or 15 years that uh, it was cancelled before its time. And there was a, a movie that came out last year, 2019, that kind of ties up the, the, the loose ends, which is great for, for fans. And that was actually the reason that um, I went back to the show. I thought, you know, I'll watch the movie, but to do that, I need to watch these three seasons first. Deadwood is fantastic. It's probably the best uh, drama series I've ever seen. It's fantastic. Have you gotten to the end of Deadwood yet? To the yeah, no, I've, I've finished it and I finished the right. Deadwood movie as well. Yeah, right, yeah. Right. Because I, it, I mean, very, very sad to get to that final episode of series three because you just think it's barely begun. It's barely begun, and it was a really anticlimactic ending as well. Yeah, uh, but Dead was fantastic. And I, I, you say it's about Gold Rush Town, I think that you can watch that, and it could also be about Kuala Lumpur in the early days in the 1860s and 70s. It's, it's about any mining town around the world um, and, and the kind of uh, shenanigans that went on. You can imagine that Al Swearingen, who is the, uh, the Ian McShane, could be Yap Aloy. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's really fantastic. Have you seen it, uh, Hezreel? I'm, I'm behind on this, guys, so I, I need to uh, 
catch up. <laughs> yeah, it 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 uh, requires time. You'll dedicate time. Well, I'm really glad you liked it, Max. It's fantastic. Well, it is fantastic, and and I was just kicking myself through every episode, thinking, why did I wait 15 years to watch this? Has it been that long? Wow. Yeah, two, 2004, I think. Wow. Okay. See, that's why it's not on my radar. Yeah, yeah because you, you were barely born. born. Yeah. yeah, before you were born. <laughs> okay, so that uh, brings us to the end of this week's show. And only remains for me now to thank um, special guests, uh, Hezreel Ashraf, who uh, you will meet again on Evening Edition. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and uh, thank you, Matt, Matt Armitage. Thanks, Cam. Thanks for having me. And uh, thank you, listeners. I'm Cam Ruslan. And thank you for joining us. And please join us next week for another exciting episode of A Bit of Culture here on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.